This is Max Bever with the ACLU of Illinois. Welcome to a bonus episode of Talking Liberties. On Saturday, February 29th, the ACLU hosted a candidates forum for the office of Cook County State's Attorney. We were pleased to be joined by Bill Conway, former Chicago City Alderman Bob Fioretti, and current Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox. We bring you that discussion in full here. We also sent questionnaires to the candidates running, asking each to share their positions on crucial civil liberties issues. You can read their responses on our website, aclu-il.org, before you vote on March 17th. I'm now handing it over to our ACLU Forum moderators, Ed Yonka and Peter Hanna. Thanks for listening. Uh, my name is Ed Yonka. I'm the Director of Communications and Public Policy at the ACLU of Illinois. Um, and I am Peter Hanna. I serve in the ACLU Board and am an adjunct professor of law here. So we are very happy and excited to uh, be part of this and moderating this panel today. And I hope you will join me now in welcoming uh, the three candidates who are with us today, Bill Conway, former Chicago Alderman Bob Fioretti, and Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox. Welcome to you all. Um, we want to begin this afternoon by just reviewing quickly uh, the rules that the candidates have agreed to uh, for this forum. Each candidate completed a questionnaire from the ACLU covering the subject areas that we'll discuss today. And, they, uh, and you have received information about finding that questionnaire on the website of the ACLU of Illinois. After we, begi or after, uh, we begin with opening statements, we're going to go through a series of questions in which each candidate will be given and provided 90 seconds to answer the question. Each candidate will answer all of the questions. There'll be no back and forth between the candidates during that, nor extra time to respond to something that another candidate uh, has said. Uh, our time is being kept right up here in front uh, by our colleague, Chelsea Diaz. Um, candidates will see a sign when they have 30 seconds remaining mm. and then when they have the stop sign. Peter and I have discussed this. We're going to try to do uh, William Rehnquist when he was Chief Justice and stop somebody mid-word before this <laughs> forum is over. Um, we will have a, we really won't do that. Uh, we'll have a final round of yes or no uh, questions, our so-called lightning round, um, and that'll be followed by closing statements from each of the candidates. So as you can see, we had a lot to uh, cover today, and we're going to ask for your cooperation as an audience. Um, there will be no questions from the audience, and we're going to ask everyone to hold their applause um, and comments during the duration of the forum. Uh, we want the candidates to hear everything that we're saying, um, and everything that they're saying, we want you to hear. Um, so with that, I think um, we're going to proceed alphabetically to begin our opening statements. Uh, Mr. Conway, uh, we will begin with you. Wonderful. My name is Bill Conway. I am. I uh, was born and raised here in Chicago on the north side. I am married and I have a three-month-old baby daughter who I don't get to spend as much time with as I'd like. Uh, I was in the state's attorney's office from 2006 to 2012 and just had a wonderful experience there. Started off prosecuting misdemeanor crime, worked in traffic, worked in bond court, handled violent crime, but spent the bulk of my time in the public corruption and financial crimes unit where I specialized in cases where I had to very deliberately follow money to get to the root cause of a problem or a perpetrator of a crime. Uh, additionally, I am a Navy veteran. I'm still, still a Navy intelligence officer in the reserves. 
and I was deployed to Qatar and Afghanistan uh, from July of 2017 until April of 2018. And it's some of those experiences that have led me to run for state's attorney on a platform of first really balancing our criminal justice reform efforts on both sides so that we are changing the way we prosecute drug crime and also changing the way we prosecute, uh, prosecute gun crime as well. And I want to thank the ACLU. As someone who tried to defend uh, defended freedom on the battlefield for this country, I appreciate that the ACLU is an organization that ensures that we can all look to the Constitution as a source of greater freedom. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mr. Fioretti, uh, your opening statement, please. Thank you. And, I, and to everybody, I say thank you for coming out today. This is an important race. I have a vision of Cook County of safe streets and strong neighborhoods. And of that vision, I can think we can achieve that. We can achieve it by people working together. But at the same time, we have rampant, rampant crime in our neighborhoods, how we deal with that, how we bring people collectively together, and what we need to do. Uh, this is an important election on the future of Cook County. The state's attorney is the top law enforcement officer in the county. We have about 200 different police units throughout this county. Sometimes those of us that live in Chicago think we're the only ones, but we have a lot of 130 suburban ones. We have a lot of other um, police entities that are controlling here in this city. Uh, my last name is Fioretti. It means a little flower. My grandfather was found in a field of little flowers, raised in an orphanage. Uh, when my dad and my, uh, and my grandfather, grandmother, and one of my aunts came across the boat to this country, they wanted to see what the American dream was. And they worked hard all their lives. They made sure I got to a good schooling. They helped pay for it. I got a scholarship. I grew up, uh, like I said, on the south side, but uh, went to U of I and NIU. And I am born and bred Chicagoan. I love this city and love what it stands for. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Fioretti. Um, and uh, State's Attorney Fox, your opening statement. Thank you. Uh, for the last three and a half years, I've had the privilege of serving as the Cook County State's Attorney at a time where much scrutiny and attention has become or has been placed upon the role of prosecutors in our criminal justice system. Uh, when I ran for this role three and a half years ago, almost four years ago, uh, not much attention was paid to the power of the prosecutor, the power to charge, who to charge, what to charge. Um, looking at our criminal justice system and seeing uh, large disparities in who was involved in our system of incarceration, particularly on issues like drug crimes or crimes of poverty. I've spent the last three and a half years of this administration uh, working to have a criminal justice system that is fair, just and equitable, while at the same time making sure that our communities are safe. Public safety is of the utmost importance to me as someone who grew up in a neighborhood that had challenges with violence in Cabrini-Green. I also recognize that violence is often fueled by factors um, beyond uh, just weaponry, that issues around poverty, access to health, economic development all play a role but that the criminal justice system for far too long had ignored those issues and had been on a course of mass incarceration fueled in large part uh, by systems of racism that had existed for many years. And I've spent the tenure in the state's attorney's office trying to undo some of the harms of the past while proactively working to keep our communities safe. Thank you, State's Attorney Fox. Um, and I'll, I'll just uh, advise the uh, candidates, please speak directly into the mic when you do respond. Um, for our first question, we're going to start with you, uh, Mr. Fioretti, and, and pick up on some of the threads we heard in the opening statements. 
Um, at every step of the criminal legal process, one sees evidence that people of color are overrepresented. People of color are more likely to be stopped on foot or in a car. People of color are more likely to be arrested. And people of color are more likely to be charged, prosecuted, and sentenced to prison. With that in mind, do you think that the criminal legal system is racist? What was the last, the, with that in mind, what? Do you think that the criminal legal system is racist? Well, I think if you apply the law fairly and you, you look at what needs to be done, uh, we have a system of justice that unfortunately feeds into the poverty, feeds into segregation here. Uh, we have a long history of housing segregation in this city. Uh, that has been caused by redlining uh, real estate agents. Uh, so I, I'm not going to say it's racist, but it is a, it, there is an inert bias in the system. I worry about somebody. Uh, this last summer, I had a large financial crimes uh, case against a uh, native uh, from India, uh, an, an Indian. And I kept saying every time we would walk into court, we've got to be careful. Do you want this to be a jury of your peers who are going to judge you in this case? Uh, there is a bias in our jury system, and we have to be sure that when you're an attorney, especially on the defense side and on the state's attorney's side, that we make sure that we have unbiased uh, jurors who, get, who choose and decide the fate of people. Thank you. Um, same question to you, State's Attorney Fox. Is the criminal legal system racist? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think it's a difficult conversation that we have, particularly for those of us who occupy these roles, but I don't think that you can address the issue if you are not honest about where the, the problems lie. The fact of the matter is, if you look just in Cook County, 86% of the people who are in our jail are black and brown, 86%. And the black and brown population of Cook County hovers around somewhere around 50%. 92% of the young people at our juvenile temporary detention center are black and brown. Now, having been an assistant state's attorney for a number of years in the office, I was oftentimes uh, frustrated and conflicted about what we were doing. I know for a fact in juvenile court, we were prosecuting young people for marijuana possession, for example, largely African-American and Latino kids on the South and West sides in ways that was dramatically different than what was happening in other neighborhoods. Neighborhoods that had the opportunity to police different, policed differently. I know when we look at, for example, our drug or cannabis, which is now legalized, the fact of the matter is in Cook County, we were prosecuting and arresting uh, African-Americans and Latinos at a rate of four times that of whites. When I look at the first day of cannabis legalization in Illinois, you all saw the news, you saw the lines, the people who were waiting six, seven hours for that first dispensary to open. It was the United Nations. There were people who, it was clear and evident, who used marijuana, and yet that population was not reflective of what we see in our criminal justice system at 26th Street. Thank you. Um, and Mr. Conway, the same question to you. Yeah, I would, I, would I would agree, unquestionably yes. I mean, we look at, for example, in, 2000, in 2017, if we were look, if someone was being sentenced on a felony, if, if the defendant in that case was white, there was a 40% chance they'd go to prison. If the defendant was Hispanic, there was a 44% chance they would go to prison. And if the defendant was black, there was a 58% chance they'd go to prison. And of course, I don't put that at, at Ms. Fox's feet, of course, but, uh, but nonetheless, it, uh, it shows an implicit, an implicit racism in the process. 
And when I think back when I was a kid, for example, I used to scalp tickets outside Wrigley Field all the time. And I was, you know, I was, of course, never arrested. But yet, years later, when I was a misdemeanor prosecutor on, you know, on the north side, I would see ticket scalping cases coming all the time. And they were not people, obviously, that looked, uh, looked like me, which just shows, just shows that. And if we're really going to combat that, at minimum in the state's attorney's office, we need to have be consistently focused on diversifying the office so it looks like it looks like our communities <coughs> and also training prosecutors so they're aware of the implicit biases that uh, that exist in the system and um, and in and certainly in sentencing and charging thank you um, our next question uh, we'll start with you state's attorney Fox and again pick up on the, the same thread how can the state's attorney office in Cook County on, under your leadership work to eliminate racial disparity in charging decisions, bail recommendations, plea bargains, and sentencing recommendations. And I'll ask, to the extent you can speak to them, what specific steps would you take in this area? Thank you. One of the first things that we did was we made every piece of felony case level data available for us to see uh, and, and available to the public. You can't fix what you can't measure. It's one thing to say anecdotally, you know, you can go and look at the jail population and say it's mostly black and brown. We wanted to be able to see on every charge that we got, what were we doing? How were we making our charging decisions? So I think the first thing that we did was say, let's look at all of it. And it was unprecedented. We were the first prosecutor's office in the country to put our felony case level data on an open data portal. Um, and we've developed that into a database. We then were able, once we had that information, to start asking the questions. What was it in our charging decisions that allowed for us to charge uh, certain people um, in different ways? Or what wasn't there? Uh, next, we started to, also baked in there, we have been doing implicit bias training for years, but implicit bias training without real sustainable measures um, is just a training that people have to go to. So once we got our information about how we were charging, what was happening with sentencing, we then brought everyone in together and had conversations around overcharging, for example. When you would see that we would charge certain people three times as many charges as necessary in an effort to get them to plead to something lesser. And started having real dialogue and training on charging decisions practices with everything rooted in how do we address the racial disparities. Thank you, State Attorney Fox. Um, Mr. Conway, same question. Yeah, you know, I spoke, uh, I spoke a little bit about some things that we, that we need to be doing as far as, as far as diversifying the office as well as as well as what we're doing with our training prosecutors, uh, and I would and I would pick up I would pick up along the data theme that uh, that Ms. Fox spoke of in the sense that we need to be aware and constantly monitoring uh, monitoring that so we can course correct the racial disparities that we're see seeing in our charging and sentencing decisions. And just to follow briefly, would you agree with State's Attorney Fox's you know characterization that this is the role of the State's Attorney Office to eliminate these racial disparities, identify them, and eliminate them? Un unquestionably, yes. Thank you. Um, and uh, Mr. Fioretti, the same question to you. Well, I think the issue is not on how we, it is on how we charge uh, to make sure that we are charging appropriately. Um, but the question gets to be is, what are the judge's decisions that lead to the sentencing? And who are the attorneys? You know, a lot of the crimes that are committed and the murders that are committed and the shootings that are committed are happening in black and brown communities. And they're, and they're being caused by black and brown uh, suspects. And when we deal with that kind of an issue, we have to have an understanding 
on what's happening in our neighborhoods. When I pushed for two and a half years in the city council on police reform and what we needed to do, it was the ultimate end on what would happen, on how the officer was charged, what was the outcome, what, what the, the board made a decision, so everybody knew. Up until that point, everything was um, in secret on what was happening on the police board. Uh, we need to refocus what does it take that somebody picks up a gun and, sh and, and fires into a crowd. That's the issue that we have to look at. We've had three mass shootings this year and, and 33 last year. And where is it in the news? You know, we need to, to go to the root causes of crime, which is poverty, which is racism, which is the ineffective assistance of counsel. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mr. Conway, we're going to start this round with you, or this question uh, with you. I think that probably everybody in this room would share belief in the adage that one is innocent until proven guilty. But the cash bail system results in many individuals being forced to spend days or months or even years in some instances incarcerated pretrial simply because they cannot afford the bail to be released. Now, Governor Pritzker has announced his support for ending cash bail, uh, the cash bail system on a statewide basis. And so the question is, how would you use your office to partner with the governor to make bail reform a reality, not just here in Cook County, but all across Illinois? Well, the first thing I, I would point out is, it is uh, fundamentally true that jail is a place for people that are a danger to the community. It's not a place where we want to be sending people there who are poor or, or addicted or mentally ill and, and not a danger to the community. And it makes no sense to me that somebody who is wealthy can buy their way, buy their way out of jail while somebody who, uh, who is poor cannot. That's not, the system, that's not the system that we should have. And I will be working with, uh, working with the legislature and certainly with the governor's <laughs> office in terms of making sure that we get we get that balance right as far as we got to make sure we're keeping dangerous people out you know in jail but but not the uh, non-dangerous and a part of a way to do that is we have to make sure we have the right data you know it has, it has of course come out that uh, that the data that was coming out of Chief Justice Evans um, or uh, uh, you know uh, Judge Evans uh, was inaccurate in the sense that 21 people have been killed by folks that were out on affordable bail, as opposed to the three that he had that he had said previously. So we have to make sure that we're getting the data right so that we can get that balance right. Mr. Fioretti. Thank you. Uh, I've been a longtime advocate about uh, lower level offenses, not having uh, bail. I've said that for years. I've had the clients. Um, I received calls from uh, county often on people that have been there for four or five and six years about helping to defend them. Uh, some of my sweet mates just recently had a trial, uh, somebody there for six years, finally found not guilty and was released. Um, but you have to, the, the question is common sense. How serious is, how serious is the crime? Uh, is there a history of repeat uh, type of crimes that, that that person commits? Does he or she show up um, uh, for his, his or her court appearances? Um, I think, you know, we can talk about what Governor Pritzker is saying, 
but that's part of the recommendations under the uh, criminal justice reform uh, report that came out under Governor Rauner, which is maybe the only good thing I can say that he did. Um, and I think Governor Pritzker said, we're going to bring that report before the legislature, talk about all the recommendations, because it's not just one, but it's, uh, um, I think, maybe uh, 50 or 60 recommendations on reforming our criminal justice system. We will put all the stakeholders at the table, and everybody will deal with the issues, and we'll come up with common sense solutions. State's Attorney Fox. Thank you. I, I often have to remind people that the Cook County Jail had been under a federal consent decree for decades because of overcrowding. And the reality is, is that while the conversation around ending cash bail has taken heightened attention in the last couple of years, this is something that I've been working on even before I ran for office. Uh, Cook County Jail is the largest single site jail in the country. Back in 2013, on any given day, there were 10,500 people who were in there. The overwhelming majority of them were there on charges that were of nonviolence, and they were there because they could not afford their bond. The reality is, as was pointed out earlier, there were people who were charged with serious offenses who had the ability to pay out. I remind people that Jason Van Dyke was charged with first-degree murder and the murder of Laquan McDonald, and the FOP paid $100,000 for him to go home and await his trial on bail. At the same time, I had a person in jail for a retail theft for stealing $350 worth of shoes who sat there for six months. I went down to Springfield and testified at the subject matter hearing around ending cash bail. I was the only uh, state's attorney in the entire state um, who advocated for eliminating cash bail. It is one thing to take on these issues when they are de jour, but I was pioneering um, in going to the state legislature and saying that this is what we should do in opposition of the Illinois State's Attorneys Association. Of the 102 state's attorneys in this state, I was the only one advocating for and will continue to advocate for the abolition of cash bail. Mr. Fioretti, we'll start with you on this. Um, when you, the three of you answered written or gave written answers to us in your questionnaires, and each of you talked about the goal of reducing the jail and prison population as being a top priority. So we wanted to know, aside from the cash bond discussion, um, if there were other changes that you uh, would support that would reduce the number of people in Illinois prisons. Would you use your office to, championing, to champion, forgive me, sentencing reform in Illinois, for example? And specifically, would you support altering the way that Illinois uses mandatory sentences, which have been demonstrated to drive the prison population in our state? Mr. Fioretti, again, we'll start with you. If I just say yes, would that be fine? <laughs> it's your 90 seconds. Yeah. Uh, of course, but you know, what are we talking about here? Uh, when I was alderman of this ward, which had the West Loop, South Loop, Bronzeville, all the way to East Garfield Park, I brought 8,000 jobs to this community, 8,000 jobs to hire from our communities. We're not gonna solve the problems of crime in our streets without education and without giving jobs. And I have always been an advocate for doing that. Uh, whether it's a, a uh, job fair for uh, veterans, job fair for uh, ex-offenders, and a job fair for my communities. I did that on a yearly basis. One thing I found out, uh, and I'm always happy to have somebody say thank you very much for having that job fair, 
because we will not solve the, the problems of crime, the problems of this revolving door of going through and out of prison unless people have good full-time jobs. I advocated for a minimum wage of $15 an hour five years ago, and to have it then, not today, because it, at this point to live in this city, you need $17 an hour. You know, we need to do better to make sure our communities are clean, they're upkept. I fight for our schools, we have good education. The pathway, uh, everybody should have a pathway to um, a home ownership, uh, a, a good job, but if, if there are other ways to achieve that. Thank you. State's Attorney Fox. Yes, I, I think if I'm hearing you right, the question is about over-incarceration. Yes. Um, as opposed to criminality. I think one, we have to have a recognition that we were overly incarcerating people for offenses that they didn't need to go to prison for. Uh, that's the reality, is that when we looked at our prison population, we had a significant number of people who were going to prison um, for short stints of time. And we had this population who there's people who were there for extremely long periods of time and people who were there for short periods. What we knew was that the disruption of people's lives and communities when people are in jails and prisons is destabilizing. When mothers, fathers are out of the home, when people aren't able to like, care for their neighbors, it's destabilizing. When we looked at the people who were going to prison, the retail theft um, decisions that we made in the state's attorney's office, we saw that people who actually went to prison on retail theft were going for four, five, six months. Months, not years. The complete disruption that was happening for people going to prison for such a low period of time and then cycling back out and these other things that Mr. Fioretti talks about, still unable to get a job, the collateral consequences of a conviction. So what we did in our office was say, what are the things that we can stop doing? So stop prosecuting certain offenses. And yes, if I prosecuted everything that was allowable under the criminal code, we would not have enough prosecutors or judges because the criminal code has expanded in the last 40 years um, that, that we would not have the resources to prosecute. So we prioritized violence and said that the people who don't need to go to prison and jails shouldn't go there and using the power of the prosecutor's office to do that. Mr. Conway, same question to you. Yeah, first, first thing I say, I'll say is that we are gonna fundamentally change the way we prosecute drug crime over the next four years. Drug crimes are roughly 40% of the felonies that are charged in, in, in Cook County. Uh, and that is something that we need to start thinking about as much more of a public health problem instead of something that can be handled in the criminal justice system. In fact, there was a great article in the Sun-Times earlier this week about the Harrison Police District that has, when they pick up somebody, they, they now often will take them to drug treatment instead of taking them to jail, which is clearly the type of thing we need to be, we need to be expanding. And I, and I look forward to working with uh, our Chicago Police and our suburban police departments on doing that. The second thing is, as far as mandatory minimums, you often will see these strange, uh, strange things that, will, that judges will do to get around <laughs> mandatory minimums, which kind of shows how useless they are. For example, I have seen multiple times where somebody charged with armed robbery with a weapon, with a gun. And armed robbery carries a sentence of six to 30 years, but if you do it with a deadly weapon, it has a 15-year enhancement. So they're looking at 21 on the bottom, at, at the low end. And what judges will often do is, you know, they'll, to get around that, they'll say, well, that gun was really gonna be used much more of a, as a bludgeon than a deadly weapon, and therefore I sentence him to 10 years or something. So, Mandatory minimums don't really work because they're not feasible and, and, and judges are, are, are going to 
work their way around them, but we might as well just get many of them off the books completely as a result of that to avoid that sort of thing. Name yes, one judge who does that. Really, that's an embarrassment to say that. I, I would just everybody I, here. I, no, Mr. Fieri, I, I would just I caution the, uh, the, uh, the uh, you'll somebody, be have a chance to address uh, you'll have a chance to address the uh, issue everybody here. later on. But I just okay. caution all the candidates to exist. direct their responses to the audience and uh, not to each other uh, because we have a lot to cover today. Um, State's Attorney Fox, uh, this next question Sorry. goes to you first. Um, much is made about prosecutorial discretion, which uh, you mentioned in your opening as well, um, and that's the power of a prosecutor to decide whether cases are charged and at what level. One way in which prosecutors in Cook County cede that authority uh, to others has to do with the way police um, uh, administer drug charges. The current yes. practice is for police to directly charge drug crimes without prosecutorial review. Yes. My question is, is this good policy, and if so, why? Um, and the follow-up to that is, will you continue this policy during the next four years as state's attorney? I knew that question was coming. <laughs> It's not, listen, it is the point that was just made. We recognize in, in our office that the majority of our cases that come, are, almost a half of the cases that come in our office are drug cases, cases that we don't charge. For those of you who don't know, drug charges are directly filed by the law enforcement agencies. Other felony cases have to come through our felony review unit. What we have done, um, as was noted in Mr. Conway's remarks, about treating drugs as a public health issue, that's what we've tried to do. Most of the drug cases that come through our office as possession cases are cases that are dismissed or deferred out at the preliminary hearing stage. When we look at the data and we compare our data to other jurisdictions, the fact is that we have more cases on no, or drug type cases that are dismissed out at prelims than other people would normally charge because that is not in our hands. What we have continued to struggle with is the recognition from our law enforcement partners that arresting and charging people for drug possession um, is not in the interest of public safety and justice. But because we are only responding to that, our response is then deferral or diversion or dismissal. Uh, the ability for us to review these cases as part of our felony review um, would be extensive. We have, I believe last year, there were almost 19,000 drug cases that were called into Cook County, uh, 19,000. Uh, to review 19,000 cases with our existing staff um, is problematic. What we would like to do is to be able to work with law enforcement to not have them bring those cases in the first place. Thank you. Um, Mr. Conway, same yeah, question to no, you. What, so over time, what we have to get to is that we are giving our law enforcement partners really bright line rules under which they have to do that. But I do refer back to my previous answer in the sense that we want to be sending those cases, uh, you know, getting those cases into treatment as quickly as possible before they really become an issue, issue in the criminal justice system. And the situations we really want to avoid is somebody is caught with a, a small amount of, uh, you know, cocaine or heroin or something, and they then get a, you know, they get their bond set in bond court, and then they get a preliminary hearing date three weeks later, and they sit in jail for three weeks, and then there's a finding of no probable cause because the judge thinks, well, it's just a small amount, so then the case gets tossed. But yet in that situation, the person sat in jail for three weeks. They probably lost, uh, probably lost their job. They uh, certainly had their family had to, had to go out of their way to, to deal with child care and things. And those are things we just need to be much more efficient about how we deal with. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Freddy, Fioretti, same question to you. If I have to listen to this stuff over here, I'd be, uh, you know, 
Well, I am totally Jeff, amazed. Would you like me to repeat the question? I, I'm totally amazed at, at, by making up stories. I'm totally amazed at criticizing our judiciary and, and thinking that the judges are finding ways to get around sentencing. Bob, you got this and, happens uh, every uh, day. Bill, Bob, I, name I've been one Mr. Judge. Mr. Conway, Mr. Fioretti, this okay. is a forum. Um, please yes, just direct your answer you. to the audience. The you know, drug addiction is a, uh, is a problem. Uh, the diversionary programs that were instituted under uh, Judge Beeble when he was the chief judge, uh, not only in drug court, but women's court, veterans court, mental health court, uh, are now virtually standardized by our Supreme Court and by our legislature across the state. Uh, they did not come out of nowhere, these programs. We, we need to treat drug, drug offenders first time and, and make sure that they're, they're, they get into treatment. They get the diversionary program. So we don't have them going through and sitting in uh, jail awaiting a trial. Um, and there's a lack of, fundamental lack of understanding on what happens in these courtrooms and how they go. So I am in favor of whatever we can do about making sure that we divert all the first time offenders. Thank you. And we're gonna talk about uh, the public health issue and diversion programs in a moment. Um, and uh, we'll start with you this time, Mr. Conway. Mm -hmm. um, so in answer to our written questions, all of you um, acknowledge that people experiencing mental illness uh, or substance abuse disorders often end up in the criminal legal system. And I think your responses to the last question reflected uh, that fact. Uh, of course, we suspect none of you would like to adopt a three strikes approach. Um, but too many of our diversion programs exclude people with previous criminal histories, mm -hmm. and many sentences for drug penalties are longer if someone does have a pre previous criminal conviction. How would you, Mr. Conway, direct your office to craft diversion mm -hmm. programs and policies that address the realities of life faced by those experiencing mental illnesses or substance use disorders? Yeah, good question. So first off, and I'll say with regard to, with regard to drug crimes, you know, if if we have someone that is really showing the, the willingness and the impetus and, and, the, and the family support to be willing to, to kick their habit, we have to support that effort. I remember actually when I was a, a law student, I worked at Georgetown's Criminal Justice Clinic. And I had, I had a guy who had multiple convictions in other states for, for crack possession. And he, this was the first one he got in DC, but the prosecutor didn't have his, didn't have his uh, records from other states. So we were able to get him into a diversion program. And I didn't, I didn't hold out much hope that he would be able to, to complete the program based on his background. But uh, I remember his brother was there and he said, look, my brother's been, you know, uh, has had a rough go of it, but I'm gonna make sure that, that he, uh, he's gonna live with me, he's gonna work at my company, my carpet installation company, and we're gonna get him through the program. And sure enough, because he had that family support, he was able to get through the program. And that's the type of thing we need to uh, that we need to be supporting people like that, even though he had obviously big background. Uh, and as far as mental health goes, you know, the criminal, the Cook County Jail is the largest mental health clinic in the state, if not the country. And the fact that they are doing the evaluations they're doing is 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 great. And hopefully, this city will reopen the mental health clinics uh, here in here in Chicago, and we can work with them to make sure we're getting the right people in there. Thank you, uh, Mr. Fioretti. Thank you. Um, I do hope. And I've been an advocate for years about reopening every mental health clinic. 
Uh, I remember when Rom said, we'll, we'll track down each and every person and where they're going, and within a few months after closing all those clinics, we lost all those people. Uh, in December, I gave a graduation speech to about 35 people who at a recovery center down here on, on Lake Street, about 3,500 West Lake. Uh, some of them been in the recovery center not once, and they graduated twice, three times. Um, I see the problems of what drug addiction can bring and what it means to lose uh, people's jobs and, and their families. But drug addiction, homelessness, and mental health are all tied together. Uh, we can't deny that in this city on what we're doing. Uh, we have to find solutions. And how do we find that? Good paying jobs, healthy jobs, making sure people have uh, an uplifting experience. That's why, again, we need to find a way to create jobs for everybody in this city. Uh, we can talk about the great downtown, but the wealth of downtown is not shared in our neighborhoods. And, and I, my vision is safe streets and strong communities for everybody. Thank you. Um, State's Attorney Fox. Thank you. When I got into office, we looked at our diversion programs and found that we were excluding a significant number of people because they had previously gone through or failed or had a conviction. And so what we said was that we were not going to exclude people because of uh, prior convictions or having failed a diversion. And thus, in the last three years, we've been able to increase our diversion participation by 25%. But I want to, again, have an honest conversation here. Drug addiction is not a, if your family is with you and help you through, we have many people who are disconnected from families because of their addictions. And we're not gonna put them in positions where they're gonna be able to have the support systems to help them. And that still doesn't mean that they don't have a public health issue. I have said and continue to say, it is my office's position and we convened a group of leaders back in October that I would prefer not to prosecute drug crimes at all and would be willing to sacrifice that portion of my budget, that 40% that goes to the prosecution of drug crimes because they don't belong in the justice system, period. Whether it's someone's third time or 15th time, the definition of addiction is someone continuing to engage in a negative behavior despite knowing the consequences. And so we are fooling ourselves to believe that, oh, this is the rock bottom when you see a drug addict's rap sheet and this is their 19th arrest and they can't get a job and they can't get housing and all these things. As it relates to mental health, I think we have to have honest conversations about the fact that we have become the repository in the criminal justice system for failed systems outside, the closing of mental health clinics and the like. And it is not sufficient for us to continue to allow these cases in, knowing we aren't the place to deal with them, and just triage. And that's what we've been doing. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Fioretti, we're going to start with you on, on this question. Many court systems and other services in Illinois are funded through fines and fees that are collected from residents who violate various state laws and local ordinances. These fines and fees fall most heavily on those uh, without the economic means to pay these costs in the first instance. How can we reduce the reliance on fines and fees to fund these programs and services and, and collaterally reduce the burden on those who are least able to pay these very costs? Well, I think we get rid of red light cameras and speed cameras. You know, that, that, is, that is a issue as we look at it on 
disproportionately impacting on poor communities uh, in and around the county. It's a money-making device. And if we use that as the example, we can transfer that, in, and most of them are done administratively, to our court system. And we have to find ways to reduce those fines and fees. Um, and you know, we used to have a, a program of, of swap, of, of doing community work, but at the same time, does that achieve what we wanna do? No. So I think comprehensively, and, and one of the um, items in the report uh, deal with uh, uh, how we adjust uh, fines and fees and make it more equitable. And I, I, I think equitable is the wrong word, but uh, more fair to the individual and making sure that they can pay it uh, if necessary. And we should look at waiving a lot of that at this point. And unfortunately, I, I have to say, we're in a system where everything is money driven in this economy, in this, in this budget, both the city and the state and the county. Uh, we are in serious times. We have a very fragile economies uh, and we need to find ways to put people to work and grow our economy. State's Attorney Fox. Certainly, when I went and testified down in Springfield on the subject matter hearing of bail, as I mentioned, I was the only prosecutor who'd done that. The other prosecutors and some of the court clerks testified that they did not want to end cash bail because of the fees that were uh, going to be lost from their revenues. We have to acknowledge in the places in our systems where people are relying on those fines and fees for their jobs, um, for their resources, uh, and, and stop. One of the things that you know, we have done and had met on uh, numerous commissions around looking at what our fines and fees are um, and what they're funding and how we can stop them. I was pleased to have worked with the ACLU on the legislation related to asset forfeiture, again, that was disproportionately impacting poor communities. Um, in addition, stopping some of our prosecutorial practices like prosecuting people who have their licenses suspended because of their inability to pay fines and fees. Uh, the reality was that we were getting a lot, or trying to basically be bill collectors on behalf of the city or the county um, at the expense of people who were making a choice between paying $400 to pay the ticket or to pay their rent. And so I think for us, it is evaluating and looking at what is the source uh, of the prosecution if it's simply to re recover money. Um, the other place where we see this is an expungement. Now that we've done the expungements on cannabis, we know that we are able to do this without cost to others. But as part of the regular expungement process, people have to pay fees, which is cost prohibitive for many people who want to get their records cleared. So I believe the state's attorney's office should be engaged in making sure that we are minimizing the impact of people having to pay fines and fees. Mr. Conway. Yeah, if someone pleads guilty to drug possession today, they are going to get more than $1,000 in fees that they, have, that they are assessed. And that is, frankly, incentivizing that person to potentially go out and commit another crime to pay their fees or, or sell drugs to pay their fees. And that's, and that's exactly the opposite of what we're trying to do in the criminal justice system. As far as something that we can do to potentially bring in more, uh, more revenue is, you know, there is a False Claims Act at the federal level that allows for whistleblower legislation, uh, litigation to get after fraud, waste, and abuse. The city of Chicago has one as, as well. But at Cook County does not have a False Claims Act, and that is something that we can do to potentially, uh, to potentially aid our affirmative litigation, uh, litigation practice. Thank you. Uh, State's Attorney Fox, we'll start with you on, on this question. Um, 
police accountability has been a frontline topic, not just here, but across the country over the past several years. And there, there are just many instances I think we can all point to where uh, communities and especially communities uh, around black men have lost faith when a police officer shoots or even kills someone, a civilian, and then is not held accountable. And so would you support asking the Illinois Attorney General to appoint an independent prosecutor to oversee matters of officer-involved shootings? When I came into office, obviously I came in at a time where an officer-involved shooting was the topic uh, of the day uh, in the murder of Laquan McDonald. What I said then was, and, and continue to say, the, the problem of prosecutors who work hand-in-hand -hand with the police department in being able to prosecute these cases. Now, in the first two months of having been in office, we did charge two police officers um, with first-degree murder, one who was on duty, one who was off. Uh, in the one that was on duty, uh, it actually just went to verdict yesterday. He was found not guilty at a bench trial. Um, while we're deeply disappointed in the decision, uh, this was a case that was charged after a thorough evaluation. Um, and the challenges of getting a guilty verdict, like across the country, exist. I think having an independent oversight of how these cases are handled is what we advocated for. So while we charged those cases and cases in which we have decided that we don't believe we have a sufficient burden, we've asked the Illinois State Appellate Prosecutors Association to do a secondary review of all of our work. Should they decide that they disagree with our de declination, then they have the ability to be appointed a special prosecutor. I think for the benefit of the public, and I did that because I understood that the public did not believe that we could handle these cases. I believe we could, um, but that distrust is real. Um, that distrust is well-earned, and I think having an independent agency that can oversee these cases um, eases that concern. Mr. Conway. Yeah, so when I was an, an assistant state's attorney, I worked with hundreds if not over a thousand great Chicago and suburban police officers. However, I also prosecuted three, three police officers and, and convicted them. So I, I certainly understand the, the balance that that has. Uh, and what I would say first off is we have to really be transparent about how we handle those cases. And to the extent that we can, if we choose not to charge a case, we need to be able to tell the public this is why we have chosen not to not to charge the person to the extent we can do that without violating any any grand jury secrecy i don't think the attorney general is the right is the right avenue of oversight they have not shown a uh, a a willingness to get involved in these cases despite concurrent uh, concurrent jurisdiction um, and they also don't have access to a grand jury either so uh, you know but i think oversight is important i think the state appellate prosecutor is probably the, is probably the right place to do it and mr fioretti same question to you well, I think the answer is that I think the state's attorney's office can do the job, uh, but it's how effectively and what to do. Uh, yesterday's shooting on the L at Grand uh, in Chicago is very troubling. I think those of you that have seen that video are appalled, as I was when I saw it this morning. Uh, but I think the state's attorney's office does have the ability to be fair uh, to all the parties to make the right decision on uh, whether to charge or not charge. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, oversight has been provided uh, from the U.S. Attorney's Office on some cases. 
so I think there is sufficient oversight across the board uh, that if the state's attorney's office does not do it, uh, it can be done. Um, and so I think the state's attorney's office is the appropriate vehicle to charge uh, and make the initial decision. Thank you. Um, Mr. Conway, we're going to build on the, uh, the topic we were just discussing, police accountability, and come at it from a slightly different angle, and we'll start with you. Um, the state's attorney is, of course, bound by Supreme Court precedent and the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, the court has ruled that a criminal defendant should have any and all information about the credibility of a witness against them. Yet today, there is no system in place uh, to ensure that information about CPD officers, including information that they have provided false reports in the past, is disclosed either to the state's attorney or the criminal defendant. Um, how do we address the problem that I just described and bring the county in line with the Supreme Court's precedent? Well, clearly we have to make sure that we are, uh, that our police officers are credible when they are, uh, when they testify before us. I mean, this, this county and, and this city has spent uh, tens of millions of dollars due to, uh, not to mention the inhumanity of, of uh, due to false uh, false um, false testimony by police officers. So if we have any get in a situation where we have any reason to think that a police officer is not telling the truth, we have to make sure that we do a thorough ethics review on that officer, and then we have to make sure that our cases are being handled appropriately because we can't put somebody who is a a known perjurer, you know, a known perjurer, um, known perjurer on the stand. And frankly, our office, uh, and I say this like I said as someone who has prosecuted police officers in addition to working with many great ones, our office needs to have a culture of, of raising these issues when our assistants see something that doesn't seem to, uh, doesn't seem to comport with reality. Thank you. Um, Mr. Fioretti. I think the problem boils down um, not so much when we find an officer who does certain things, but how we hire uh, in our police department, how we train those people, how we have supervision, and how we have discipline. Uh, I, I find that sometimes, uh, especially in the past, but I think there's been improvement, that we have no discipline. We have no um, supervision. You know, the state's attorney uh, has talked about the Laquan McDonald Van Dyke case uh, he was a classic example of somebody not having the proper supervision, of not having uh, the proper issues brought. I mean, he was sued three times over the uh, same issues, uh, and nobody questioned him. Uh, from what I read in the, one of the Tribune, he was suffering from some of the same problems that uh, uh, we have talked about out here. Uh, and whether you have uh, credit problems, marriage problems, alcohol problems, all those need to be brought uh, to the forefront by your supervisor and talked about and making sure because those that suffer from those problems cover up before they get to the real uh, problems. And we need honest, good police officers out there protecting the public. Thank you. And uh, State's Attorney Fox. Thank you. Again, I think the... These are difficult conversations to have because they highlight some of the issues that we have with our partners in law enforcement. When we came into office, what we realized is that we needed to do training, retraining on Giglio issues. Um, and when we did that training, what we realized is that we needed to make sure that our partners in law enforcement understood their Giglio obligations. 
And the reality was that many of our law enforcement partners did not understand their Giglio obligations. We then wrote a letter um, and sent it to uh, the Fraternal Order of Police as well as to CPD, outlining the questions that we would ask about adverse credibility findings, ad asking questions about had um, other issues of credibility that may come to bear. And the Fraternal Order of Police started to advise uh, their, their line uh, rank and file members to not answer our questions. And that was, I will be honest with you, incredibly shocking to me. Um, it was an issue that we brought uh, to the then superintendent and we were able to work through it. So this isn't a matter of, to be clear, um, just training outside. It's making sure that your assistants know what their obligations are and that your law enforcement partners do and that we are compiling um, that information and making that information readily available um, so that we are not putting witnesses on the stand who we shouldn't and more importantly, that the defense counsel is fully apprised of what the officer's credibility findings are so that they can prepare appropriately. Thank you, and just a very quick yes, no follow-up. I'm just gonna run through the three candidates. Um, just yes or no, would you fight to require CPD to disclose to your office any information that goes to the credibility of a testifying police officer? Mr. Conway, yes or no? Yes. Mr. Fioretti? Yes. And State Attorney Fox? Yes, and I have. Mr. Fioretti, uh, we're gonna begin this question with you. Uh, the Trump administration, and I think that's the first time we've mentioned them today, <laughs> uh, has taken a hard line towards immigrants and asylum seekers in this country over the past three years. And we know that they are willing to use any interaction with the criminal legal system as an opportunity to deport someone in immigration proceedings or to deny status to someone who is here. So how would you address, and your office work to address this situation, and would you consider immigration-related consequences as part of a charging decision as a beginning point? My answer to the second point is no. Uh, but as to the issues of whether or not we deal with immigration in a fair status, uh, those that, uh, and I am a firm believer that if you're in this country, how you came here, what the issues were, have to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis, and we will make that decision. Uh, a blanket yes or a blanket no, I think is wrong. And I've always said that in terms of how we deal with our immigration policies. I've sat through a number of discussions in the city council, uh, and my dad was an immigrant, uh, he came here uh, and found employment the best he could. Uh, so when we look at it, I, we're, we're sworn to uphold the Constitution both of the state and of our country, but we've been dealing with this problem uh, from the Bush era, the Clinton era, um, the Bush era, uh, the Obama era. If we can't find a solution to this problem, and it's an issue, it's not a problem because there are people that want to get into this country. They want to seek a better life. I don't know what we can do here. And to say law enforcement, you're gonna hold it all up? No, that's wrong too. State's can, Attorney Fox. Can you repeat the question, I'm sorry? Sure, how would your office work to address this situation of these charges being used in immigration settings? And would you consider immigration-related consequences as part of a charging decision? Yes, 
So we've hired the state's attorney's first ever immigration policy advisor um, almost a year ago. And the reason that we did that was that we wanted to have someone who was on staff who understood the collateral consequences of a conviction as it related to um, immigration, particularly because of what was happening at the Trump administration. What we found was that a lot of low-level, nonviolent offenses that we said that we did not want to pursue had uh, far greater consequences for those who were here undocumented. And so we were talking about people who had a DUI charge from years ago, and that charge was then being, or that conviction was then being used for purposes of removal. We were having one-offs where we were talking to people about going back in and reopening the cases to get a better sentencing disposition uh, to avoid that. And so we brought someone on staff full-time who was able to do that. And we then started to build out a curriculum for our assistants to look at from the very beginning to consider the collateral consequences of immigration at every step of the proceedings. One of the other things when we did marijuana legalization, for example, in Cook County, we vacate convictions, not just expunge them. The reason that we vacated convictions here in Cook County, we thought it was the widest um, possible relief, particularly for undocumented communities, again, such that those convictions, even though expunged, could not be found and be used for the basis of removal. I think we have an absolute affirmative responsibility in the state's attorney's office to work against this president and his xenophobic and racist agenda against immigrant communities. Mr. Conway. Yeah, no. On top of that, you know, we, we have to make sure that ICE is not using any resources that, that are part of the county in their, uh, in their uh, racist deportation, certainly including any access to the Cook County gang database, which, which still does exist. Uh, and that needs to, immigration consequences especially need to be considered in light of the, in light of the draconian, draconian uh, times of the current administration. Because what it does is it has such a chilling effect on, on victims and, and witnesses coming forward to, to participate in the criminal process. And that's, not, and that's not what we want. And that's why we have to make sure that, that we are taking into account immigration consequences when we're handling looking at these cases. Thank you, uh, Mr. Conway. Um, State's Attorney Fox, this next question will begin with you. Um, there is a growing awakening that decisions uh, about the criminal legal system should be made on the basis of facts and data, not anecdotes, fear, and mythology. Would you be willing to publicly post and share information about arrests, charging decisions, plea bargains, convictions, and other decisions in your office that would assist, the, assist in the public dialogue about policy and would you agree that this data should also include race and gender information? Why, yes, I do. Um, it is the reason that we published our data uh, starting back in 2017. Uh, and all of the data that we have published is information that comes from our case management system. And so we don't have access to our law enforcement partners, but we have actually been working with them, particularly with CPD, about sharing their data as well. I think too much of our failed criminal justice policy in this country has come off of antidote. And the unfortunate reality is I've seen this while running for office this term, where people will do fear-mongering techniques and tell you about 21 people and not give you the full scope of the data that was used to make an analysis. They will tell you about roving bands of people going into stores and doing things to try to dismantle what we're talking about that's backed by data. 
I think we absolutely have to have data driving what we do in this office because that is how we got into this era of mass incarceration of singular instances where people then want to become overly punitive and then 30 years later we recognize that we have failed. Everybody now de jour says that we have a failed war on drugs. Everybody up here knows that people were continuing to prosecute people disproportionately based on race and income and didn't care because, as many people have already said, well, those are the laws on the books. If you aren't able to show your work and show the disproportionate impact, then you're not able to go back and fix it. And so I believe that we've started a trend across the country of prosecutors' offices sharing this information. And I think that it is our utmost responsibility to have that made available to the public at all times. Thank you, State's Attorney Fox. Uh, Mr. Conway, your answer. Yeah, no, we need to have that data data be publicly available so that the public can see the progress that that the office uh, that the office is making, and they can see the the truth behind that. And that that data needs to be easily accessible. For example, the office used to do uh, annual data reports, but they they stopped in in 2017, and they were kind of a nice nice way to really see see the progress of the office over that. So we're certainly going to bring uh, bring those bring those back. Uh, as well as having race and gender information to, to address your question. And additionally, you know, last year there was about 35,000 or so uh, felonies, uh, felonies prosecuted, but there's also over 200,000 misdemeanors prosecuted, and we get absolutely no data on them. Now, the data cannot be as, as comprehensive, as, of course, but I think we also need to be providing the public with some data about what happens to all those misdemeanor cases as well. 250,000 misdemeanors, just right. for clarity. Thank, thank you. Uh, both of you. Um, Mr. Fioretti, your response? Well, I, I, I do think we have to have the portals open to make sure that people understand the data that comes in, what they're charged with, the ultimate uh, disposition, who the judge was, how many judges that they had to go through. I think all that impacts on decision-making both, but sometimes knowing and being a defense attorney often, uh, we, we try to do things to make sure we protect the interests of our clients, uh, to make sure that we get a fair disposition out of this, uh, out before the courts. Uh, that is why, quite frankly, um, when I pushed through the police reform acts, when I was in the city council, to make sure that everything was posted, the charges were posted on police officers. People didn't understand why one uh, police officer who was charged with one uh, set of circumstances and another one with the same set of circumstances di uh, received a disproportionate punishment. I think the same thing needs to hold true. Um, we should be publishing uh, the final disposition, not just how, it, how many months, but what the judge's reasoning was uh, in according a sentence on the individual before them. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Conway, we're gonna start with you on this question. Ed, uh, oh. I, unfortunately, uh, I do have a, a, a serious appointment with somebody uh, that I have to make, and I'm, I'm sorry I can't stay for the end of this. I think this has been one of the most uh, fruitful discussions w w that we've had on criminal justice. So I do thank everybody for, staying, uh, for being here, and I am extremely sorry that I have to leave. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Mr. Conway, uh, we're going to start with you on, on this question then. Um, people, for people being supervised on probation and parole, mm -hmm. conditions of release often include provisions that appear designed to trap people into technical violations that risk their freedom. 
Uh, these provisions can be everything from curfew violations to associating with people who just happen to live in one's own neighborhood. So what role can the state's attorney play in limiting arrests for these sorts of violations that result in dozens of people being cycled back into jail and prison each year? Well, first off, these kind of uh, these kind of smaller things really shouldn't be part really shouldn't be part of our uh, of our diversion programs at all. And I and I say that as someone I, I just had a client who got through got through a rigorous diversion program. Um, but additionally, into that, we certainly shouldn't be putting people in jail uh, for failure to pay fees. I mean, we got rid of debtors' prisons, you know, decades ago. So it's not something that we should be adding to the uh, adding to the criminal justice process. And and uh, you know, I, I just come back to the fact that these small sorts of things really shouldn't be really shouldn't be part of it at all. I mean, if somebody commits another crime, yeah, they should be violated. But these other things, they shouldn't be. State's Attorney Fox. Again, I just want to make sure I understand the question. You're talking about people on conditions of parole, correct? correct. Not diversion. Right. Okay. So one of the things that we looked at and, and took a lot of heat for back in when I first came into office was that we were seeing a number of people getting technical violations for associating with gang members. Um, our office um, would not and stopped prosecuting those offenses to the ire of some of our judges at 26th Street who again were using the rhetoric of fear-mongering saying that she is not prosecuting people for associating with gang members. The reason that we didn't do that is based on what you just said and based on my experience is that a number of people who live in neighborhoods that have been impacted by violence and gangs know people in their own families who are from gangs. And we were essentially saying as a condition of their release, they could not associate with people who lived in their neighborhoods. And so we stopped prosecuting that and then advocated for um, that removal down in Springfield um, from the statutory codes. I think the other thing that we have tried to do is recognize uh, when probation and parole are bringing us violations that we don't have to file them. We don't have to, to push for them. Um, and working with, for example, probation, uh, which is separate from parole, and saying that we will not rubber stamp uh, technical violations simply because you want to send somebody back down. Same thing with conditions for release on parole, working with the Illinois Department of Corrections and saying um, that we do not believe that technical violations should be the basis for recommitment um, for nonviolent offenses. Thank you, um, <coughs> State's Attorney Fox. Um, and we'll start this uh, next question and with you as well. Um, many communities now use the phrase criminal legal system, and you've heard us refer to it that way throughout this forum, um, instead of criminal justice system. And the term criminal legal system is being used because these communities no longer believe the system can or is providing justice. How do we instill confidence in the system and make the notion of justice once again relevant for many in our county and our communities? I think we have to, one, recognize and acknowledge um, the harm that has been done by the system to many people in our community. I think we have to start with the premise that this isn't some notion that people have that's conjured up from myth that we have had over-policing, over-prosecution um, in a number of neighborhoods where people just simply have lost faith. It's one of the reasons that we've been so vigorously committed to our Conviction Integrity Unit is that we have people, for example, in the cases of Sergeant Watts, who was preying on people in the Ida B. Wells housing project. Many of these people um, had been engaged in illegal drug sales, and so they were vulnerable uh, to someone in law enforcement exploiting them. 
But what then happens is it's not just that individual, it's the family members or people who live in that neighborhood that know what happens when corrupt law enforcement was allowed to take hold. And so we have to acknowledge that that happened, have plans to correct it, and then show ourselves approved. It's like doing things on bond reform, not criminalizing poverty, and quite frankly, not talking about silly things for the course of time and diverting information or time away from real issues that matter to people in our neighborhoods and say that we see them and value them and not talk about militarization as a source of, of combating crime in their neighborhoods. That's how you do it, is that you recognize harm, work to fix it, and empower the people who live there to be able to take control of their fates. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Conway? Well, I'm excited about the fact that we have a new, a new superintendent who is a big believer in community policing, because I think that is, that is something that needs to happen to bring the, uh, rebuild the relationship between the community and the police. And it looks like, it looks like the committee is going to have, the next superintendent is going to be somebody who similarly has that belief system. Uh, and additionally, I think it's also important that the prosecutor be somebody who is visible in the community, and, and, and I certainly will be that. Uh, but at the end of the day, also, when we look at community policing, the police officers that are bad, we have to identify them and get them out of the Chicago or suburban police officers because they make all the, all the, good, ones, all the good ones look bad. And I am someone that uh, has prosecuted bad officers and been thanked by good officers for for uh, getting rid of them because, uh, because they knew that they were making them all look bad. But additionally, at the end of the day, we have to stop the cycle of economic disinvestment in our communities because if we're gonna get after violent crime, we have to stop economic disinvestment. If we're gonna stop economic disinvestment, we have to get after violent crime. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just so we're showing our work over here, mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you that this is the last full form question We've got a couple yes or no's and then closing statements. Um, I was relying so, on Bob for a little rest <laughs> situation, so I... <laughs> well, Mr. Conway, you're up. <laughs> so oh, all right, is, okay. Well, I didn't get my Bob break, there so There is I didn't no know. rest. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wonder if you could just talk out or talk a little bit or mm -hmm. share with folks what you would see as your priorities for the first 100 days of a new term. Yeah, so on... The first, first things we're gonna be trying to do, and I've been talking a little bit about how we're gonna change the way we think about, think about drug crime. So the first thing I wanna do is we really be partnering with, with treatment options so that we can be very quickly diverting drug possession, people charged with drug possession into those. Also though, uh, when we look at how we're handling bond court, I think somebody who commits a violent crime or a crime with a gun, I think that person should go to jail. And we're gonna be forcefully advocating for that, uh, for that when I'm state's attorney as well. So we're gonna change the way we do, do drug crime. Addition, I'm, excuse me, uh, uh, gun and violent crime. And additionally, when we talk about public corruption, we are gonna form a strong relationship uh, with each of the inspectors general so that they know that our office is then, is then ready to get after the corrupt public officials uh, that line their pockets on the taxpayer's dime. State's attorney Fox. Thank you. Back in October, we convened a meeting with about 60 advocates, activists, researchers, and academics on mental health um, and substance use disorder. And, and part of that convening, or the purpose of that convening, was what happens when the state's attorney's office is no longer prosecuting these cases? Um, and what are the responses going to be in the public health sector? 
that is and has been, um, and I'm grateful to hear that Mr. Conway is also supportive of that, uh, the work of this office um, in looking at how we can address the overuse of incarceration in our systems. The other thing that we're looking at is sentencing review. What we find is that we have these draconian penalties that have been in place for a long period of time where people were given sentences that perhaps are disproportionate to the crime, even violent crimes. And having a panel to go back and look and see if we can review past sentences um, to find a sentence that is more appropriate so that we are not having people languish in prisons um, for decades um, when we believe that their time can be done. And then lastly, we need to continue to focus our attention on gun crimes. There are still far too many children who are unable to go to school um, without fear. There are far too many of our young people who are dealing with trauma um, in their lives and cycling in and out of our justice system. And our responses have come far too little too late. And so making sure that we're partnering in the mental health space as well to deal with trauma and trauma-informed responses in our justice system. Great. Um, so State's Attorney Fox, we're gonna start this lightning round with you. Yes. You can answer this yes or no. You've yes all or been no, maybe so. You, you've <laughs> all been really good with time, so if you have an extra sentence right. you wanna add, um, I'm not gonna let Peter cut you off. <laughs> I, of course, <laughs> do that. Uh, so the first question, State's Attorney Fox, would you support legislation to change the possession of a small amount of drugs from a felony to a misdemeanor? Absolutely. Mr. Conway. Yes, absolutely. I saw it happen in, in Washington, D.C. when I was a defense, defense there, attorney there as a law student, and it, and it seemed to work great. Okay. Next question in the lightning round. Uh, Mr. Conway, we'll start with you. Uh, would you support legislation that increases the dollar value threshold for prosecuting theft and retail theft as a felony since Illinois threshold is among the lowest in the country? For me, for me, that one's a bit, a bit more nuanced because I think about one-off. I look at the intent of retail theft when I think about you know you have one-off retail theft versus ver versus organized retail crime, and if we were to raise the threshold and we then wanted to prosecute organized retail crime that happened below that threshold, it would have to fit into a bucket of either a continuing financial crimes enterprise or a or a robbery which involves a use of force. And if it didn't, then we wouldn't be able to, to do that. So I want to make sure that there's a proper statute to get after organized retail crime if we are going to raise the retail theft uh, threshold. Right. Uh, State's Attorney Fox. Why, yes, I wouldn't agree with that. We have one of the lowest thresholds in the country for felony retail theft. I think it's important for us to remind our constituents of that. Uh, our Felony threshold is $300, In I'm gonna take my Bob Fioretti time. In the liberal bastion of Indiana, it's 750. In Wisconsin, it's 2,000. In Minnesota, it's 1,000. In Iowa, it's 900. I would go through the entire map, but 47 other states have a higher threshold, much higher. The Pew Research Institute did a study that found that the raising of the felony threshold did not, despite the political rhetoric that you hear, have people running out and stealing $998 worth of stuff prior to taxes. That is absurd. And we can still, and we still do, prosecute retail theft rings. 
I want us to understand that what we are doing, the reason the prison population in Illinois has decreased at a higher rate in the last three years is because fewer people have gone to prison for retail theft for these amounts where they were going for months. And so there's actually not much nuance to this. The felony threshold should be in line with the 47 other states that have gotten it right before we did. Uh, State's Attorney Fox, this one goes to you. Um, will your office commit to charging the lowest level crime that still promotes public safety? Yes, one of the things that we've been working on and has often been used in debates against me is making sure that we aren't overcharging people. The reality is, and I will say it here, and, and Mr. Conway can address it if he likes, is that the state's attorney's office had a practice of laying on multiple charges so that people would feel compelled to plea to something. That's why I think it is absurd if you can charge charging people with 16 counts for something that you can charge them with two. But that's a practice. And so our office has been working, and hence when I sometimes get publicly frustrated when I see us define what I think our mandate is, which is to not overcharge and to charge only what is appropriate, um, is important. And so that is my commitment. That is what we have been working on, is ensuring that our office is not overcharging for purposes of eliciting pleas. Mr. Conway. Yeah, I, I, I yes. And what the, the issue often is is that a higher class felony will be charged when a lower class felony is appropriate. So for example, I saw many cases where, uh, in fact for years, every armed robbery I saw also would have an attempt murder charge with it because before that thing, and it's that sort of thing where clearly in those situations, you can't prove the attempt murder beyond a reasonable doubt, so you just should only be charging the armed robbery. We need to be charging people with crimes, crimes that can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, not overcharging to uh, incentivize that person to plead plead guilty to something. Thank you. Um, and uh, you know, this is obviously an ACLU forum, so uh, this next question will make a lot of sense. Uh, Mr. Conway, <laughs> beginning with you, what is your favorite protection guaranteed under our Constitution? I know it's not a strictly yes/no <laughs> yeah, question, no, no, but we have some uh, extra yeah. time. No, I, I would. I think. I think uh, there's a lot of great ones, but I would say freedom of speech. That's the one that that. Uh, is is the is the one that makes sure that uh, we get our views and maintains and maintains our democracy. You know, and I and I say that, like I said in my in my opening. You know, I fought for freedom overseas, and I commend the ACLU for protecting our freedoms our freedoms here at home. And that's and that would be the one I would choose as our most important. Thank you, uh, State's Attorney Fox. Uh, I concur. I think the freedom of speech is the. Uh, I, don't, I hate to say the most important, but one that I value most. Um, I think it allows for those, particularly those who have dissent, um, to ensure that their voices are heard. I think oftentimes I am in places where I don't agree uh, with things that people are being said, but appreciate the fact that we live in a place where they have the right to say them. Having seen what is attempting to be done to our country now under this administration um, and the silencing of voices or the persecution and prosecution of those who are dissenting, I think now more than ever we need more people speaking up, speaking loudly, speaking on behalf of those who don't have access to speak, um, to dissent, to dissent loudly and to dissent proudly. Thank you. So um, with that, we have come to the end of our questions. And since you have all been so respectful in terms of time, uh, State's Attorney Fox, we will begin with you and give you two minutes for any closing remarks you'd like to make. Thank you. 
I want to first and foremost thank uh, the ACLU for hosting this forum. Uh, as Mr. Fioretti said before he left, I will tell you that this has been the most substantive um, forum that I've participated in, and for that I am very grateful. As one who recognizes the seriousness of the issues that face the Cook County State's Attorney's Office um, and the powerful role that prosecutors have, I think it requires a thorough and thoughtful conversation about what's at stake here. And I will tell you what's at stake here. We have been a prosecutor's office that has been a model for reform. I didn't set out to do that three years ago or four years ago when I ran for this office. I ran before there was a notion of a progressive prosecutor wanting to use my experience, having grown up in public housing here, having seen people come in and out of the justice system, and knowing that these issues are complicated, as, as complicated as the people that we see. And that using the power of our prosecutor's office to stop some of the practices that we were doing that was causing more harm than good under the banner of public safety, making sure that we were transparent in our work, ensuring that as we were burgeoning or getting into burgeoning areas like cannabis legalization, that we were righting the wrongs of the war on drugs, that we were stopping the criminalization of poverty, that we didn't talk about bond reform in fear-mongering ways that would scare people into believing that we could absolve our, our responsibility to make sure that we believe in the presumption of innocence no matter what the charge. It has been a job that has been difficult because we have shaken the status quo. And it is easy to talk progressive values. I will tell you it is far more difficult to lead with them. And because of that leadership, it is why we've seen such broad support, whether it's from presidential contenders or other organiz progressive organizations. And we've seen progressive prosecutors as a result of this election elected in Philadelphia, San Francisco, Boston, and across the country. This isn't for those who just want to come into the fight now. I have a demonstrated record of caring and fighting for these issues alongside many of you and prior to taking this role. And it has been the honor of my lifetime to serve as the Cook County State's Attorney and would continue to love to do this work with your vote. Mr. Conway. Yes. If you could hold for just a second, Mr. Conway. No, I, I first want to thank you all for coming and certainly thank the ACLU for hosting, for hosting this uh, hosting this debate and thank our moderators for, uh, for your excellent questions. Uh, and I hope that I've given some idea of what we're going to do over the course of the next four years. First off, we're going to change the way we think about drug crime. And we're going to be really looking at that as a public health crisis. And we need to do it because it's about 40%, 40% of the felonies charged here in this county. The second thing we need to do is, is and, I, and we didn't get a chance to talk about that, is we really need to get after the supply chain that's bringing all these illegal guns here. I mean, last year the Chicago Police Department seized over 10,000 guns off our street, much more than the 7,000 they were, they were uh, you know, uh, seizing just, just four years ago. And uh, we need to work our way up to the people that are trafficking in these guns by the dozens and the hundreds. And we all know that they are not people that are from that are from our neighborhoods. Now, that, do, that of course goes hand in hand with stopping the cycle of economic, economic disinvestment in our neighborhoods because those things need to go hand in hand. And the third thing I'll say is we need to get politics out of the office. And we're gonna do that. We're gonna be thoroughly prosecuting public corruption over the next four years. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Um, but that brings us to the end of the forum. Um, I'd like to thank all the candidates for answering our questions and would like to invite the audience to join me in thanking them for their work today. Thank you.